This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. Hold your horses, it's sponsor time. Dr. Michael Brooks, why do you think people enjoy listening to our podcast, Science Ish? People like learning stuff, don't they? People like learning stuff. And that is why I think they'll be excited about the Great Courses Plus. So this is unlimited access to learn from the world's top professors and experts in virtually any category. So science or history or music or like how to cook better, how to take better photographs. There's thousands of video and audio lectures to choose from. You can watch or listen wherever you want, which always makes me feel like I'm slightly living in the future where I've watched something on my laptop and then I just continue watching it on my phone. Oh, I like or that. Or my yeah, iPad yeah. from the place I stopped watching on my laptop. Yes. I just sort of think, this is why living in 2018 is cool. No, I'm with you. And the course that I have started on is The Inexplicable Universe by uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a big don. He's a good communicator. He's covering all the good stuff, black holes and extraterrestrial life, the multiverse. I mean, it's right up my street. But whatever you're interested in, you will find something that is up your street. So sign up for The Great Courses Plus today to unlock a world of knowledge. And we have arranged, and I I've got to tell you, it wasn't easy to arrange this, guys, but we have arranged it, a special limited time offer for you, the Science-ish listener. A full month of unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures. For how much money? Hmm, I wonder. It's free. Literally a free month. But to get this, you must sign up now using this address, thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash science. Thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash science. Enjoy. We got a call from one of the intercept stations, Scarborough. And they started picking up a single word broadcast on the hour, every hour, coming out of UBED headquarters at Centre Seas. What did it mean? It meant change the weather code. The Germans have switched the U-boats to a new codebook and they're blacked out again. Three convoys left New York in the past week and are presently at sea. So where are the U-boats now? I'm afraid I have no idea. Our intelligence has been shut off. Fuel oil, tanks, iron ore, bauxite, also meat, sugar. You're telling us that the largest assembly of merchant shipping we've ever sent across the North Atlantic is now steaming towards the largest concentration of U-boats the Germans have ever put in the North Atlantic. And you don't know where the hell the goddamn U-boats are. 
Gentlemen, if I may. Technologically, it is possible to make an impenetrable device or system where the encryption is so strong that there's no key. There's no door at all. China is poised to become the first country to send decoded information from space that cannot be hacked. Any information can be encoded, and I mean encoded, not encrypted, by represented as a sequence of zeros and ones. And then cryptography takes it further, takes the secret sequence of zeros and ones, and plays with it in in such a way that、um, the resulting sequences are readable only though by those who who are supposed to read it. I actually think America is more secure with end-to-end unbreakable encryption available to all Americans. Is it likely that you can break this code? This um, what's called this、uh, this shark for our convoys coming range of the U-boats. We'll give it every priority. Oh, I know damn well you'll give it every priority, Lila. That's not the question. Because whenever someone comes with a really ingenious crypto system, sooner or later, you'll have someone else who is even more brilliant and comes up with a, a brilliant method of breaking the systems. Hello and welcome to Science Dish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. <laughs> In the show, as you well know, we take one piece of fiction and we ask one massive question. And this week,、uh, Brooksy, you're taking the helm. You've been keeping this quite secret, haven't you? Oh, very good. <laughs> What are we looking at? We are doing the film Enigma. Kate Winslet, two thousand and one classic. I think it's a classic. Anyway, I really enjoy this film. I've seen it a few times. Cryptography. Have you seen? It? Hence my secret remark. Oh, I don't think you needed to explain it to anybody because it's about keeping secrets from the enemy, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> did you ask if I'd seen it? Yes, I did ask that. Yes, I'm going to keep that information a secret from you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what it's about. So it's a fictionalised story set in Bletchley Park during World War Two. The Code Breakers, adapted from a Robert Harris novel. Hang on, it's not about the Enigma machine. Yes, it is. Is this definitely fiction? Yes, it's fictionalised. It's based around true events. Yes, in the you know the Germans had an Enigma machine、uh, that was very difficult to break into. Yeah,、uh, but the story of the actual film is just all made up about. You know, having a mole inside Bletchley Park and trying to find out somebody was like leaking、uh, secrets to the Germans、okay. and stuff. Okay, who was it? I'm not telling you.、No. It's a secret. How many people knew about the German weather code? How important it was to us? Doesn't maybe why? Make me a little list. What are you doing here, Mr. Wigram? You think there's a spy in Bletchley Park? What's our big question going to be? So our big question is: Can we make an unbreakable code? Yes, I think we can. All right then. So we'll just stop this episode,、mm-hmm. shall we? Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production. <laughs> <laughs> Who's our heavy hitter that we've got on board to answer this one? So this week we have got one of the inventors of quantum cryptography, Professor Arthur Eckert of Oxford University. Little eyes light I'm up. I'm loving this so much.、Uh, he's also director of the Centre for Quantum Technologies in Singapore. Ah,、uh, where、well, you do some work. I do. Do you full work- declaration of conflict of interest there? Do you work at the Centre for Quantum Technologies?、Uh, I advise them. Do you? <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> Ozzy. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Cryptography is uh, is an art and science of um, hiding and protecting information. Primarily, cryptography today is about modifying binary data. The reason for that is that any information can be encoded, and I mean encoded, not encrypted, by represented as a sequence of zeros and ones. And then cryptography takes it further, takes the secrets, sequence of zeros and ones and plays with it in, in such a way that um, the resulting sequences are readable only though by those who, who are supposed to read it. And so the question is, is there such a thing like a truly unbreakable cipher? And if there's a good candidate for this, it is something that is called one-time path. It is an idea that is based on um, shared randomness, in fact. So imagine two people, we call them Alice and Bob, who share random secret sequence of numbers. So those two sequences are identical. So Alice and Bob have two identical random sequences of binary digits. And then Alice and Bob can then communicate in public and turn those random sequences into meaningful messages without revealing any information in public. And this is pretty much unbreakable. However, there is a problem because the, the two random sequences of zeros and ones known as cryptographic keys can be used only once. So once you use them to turn them into a meaningful message, uh, you cannot reuse them anymore. And therefore, for Alice and Bob to communicate, there is a need of uh, constant supply of uh, binary digits. And that is a problem. That is a problem known as the key distribution problem, simply because Alice and Bob could be miles away from each other. And then any way of distributing keys using conventional methods is always vulnerable to eavesdropping. And that, that critical problem was the problem of conventional cryptography. And trying to solve key distribution problem, people ventured into another type of cryptography, which is based on difficult mathematical problems. And this is basically what we use today. Those ciphers are of the kind that they, they do not really offer perfect security. We know how to break them. The problem is that it's very, very inefficient. It's very difficult to break them. It would require enormous computational power to break such a cipher. And therefore, for all practical purposes, they're considered secure. So, first of all, easy one. When did cryptography start? When did we first start trying to encode information in a kind of inaccessible way? So the ancient Greeks were doing it. Uh, so you, you start with the sort of permutation ciphers where you just change things around a little bit. Uh, we have like uh, the the uh, Caesar cipher, 100 uh, BC, where you just substitute one of the letters or substitute the letters for something else in a message. So move three down the alphabet, for instance. Right, so, yeah. so A becomes D and, uh -huh. and so on. Uh, and as long as everybody knows what they're doing, so you can change it back, you know, so the generals get Caesar's message, they change it back three places, and they, it yeah. kind of makes sense. One of the big breakthroughs was, uh, uh, there was a guy called Al-Kindi, who was director of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. And he worked out that actually, in certain languages, um, you would have a certain amount of uh, letters turn up with a certain frequency. So in English, it's 12.7% of the letters are the letter E. Right. So if you analyze the, the frequency at which you've got various different letters turning up, then that substitution code 
in, in, encryption just allows you basically to break it really easily. And then uh, it got complicated sort of in the in the Renaissance. So that's when we invented machines, basically. Uh, so there's uh, Leon Battista Alberti uh, invented a machine that was basically a cipher I didn't know you disc. spoke whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> that was my best Italian accent. <laughs> so he sort of had this machine that was basically two concentric disks uh, and they rotate sort of with respect to each other and just jumble up the code in a way that you can't really work out unless you've got the machine itself. Ah, so then the problem is trying to recreate the machine. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And that that takes you, you know, right through. I mean, that's kind of the basis of the of the Enigma machine. But you have other kind of things in in the in the meantime. So you get something called the one time pad, uh, invented in eighteen eighty two, which is basically again another way of having a substitution cipher. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, if you use it only once, then there's no way any analysis can uh, can break it. So as long as it's only used once, there's no actual way to kind of break into it. So the one-time pad is the kind of ultimate, in a sense. But the but the problem is you have to have a shared key. So so the key for this thing is, uh, I mean, it used to be that you just generate a whole load of random letters or numbers or whatever, and and then you know you have one copy of this string of of digits, mm -hmm. and the other person has the other copy. Yeah. But the problem is you've got to get it to them without it being intercepted. Mm. So so it works really well as long as nobody can intercept the actual encryption key as it's being sort of distributed around. And if I'm trying to distribute it to people who are a long way apart, that's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's the weakness of it. Mm. As as with you know most encryption schemes, it's the kind of human factors that you've got to deal with. But by World War II, the Germans pretty much thought that they developed an unbreakable code, didn't they? Yeah, so this is their Enigma machine, which yeah. was actually invented well before the war by Dr. Arthur Scherbius, a Dutchman. Uh, so this, the idea was that it was for sort of commercial companies wanting to protect their secrets. Uh, but it was, uh, he sort of set, or they, they set up production in, in Berlin to make these machines. So the Germans had the kind of best access right. to them. So it's a set of rotating disks that you, you punch in effectively on a typewriter the, the letter that you want. And by these series of rotating disks, um, it gets scrambled sort of, you know, you can have four or five rotors. And then uh, in later versions as well, it had a kind of electronic shift as well. Uh, so it gets scrambled into another completely different letter. Um, and you basically then have to have an Enigma machine to uncode it. To reverse it. it. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many millions of possibilities of, of what that letter could be. Uh huh. So how did they break it? Well, I mean, thankfully, uh, there was a, a bunch of Polish people, Polish cryptographers, who basically did all the hard work of sort of working out what the Enigma machine was like. Because the German Navy was using this sort of even before the, the war started. And Doesn't feel like these Polish people have got a great deal of credit in history to me. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. But basically, before the war, um, these Polish cryptographers worked very hard to work out what the Enigma machine was like, to recreate it from manuals that they had. They built uh, their own sort of versions of it. But they also built um, early computers called bombs that were able to kind of run through all the possibilities right. and, and give you the answer and, and decrypt these these machines. So, right. so just as war broke out, they basically passed all of this information to British intelligence, uh, who then used it to kind of set up the and whole... And took the credit. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then took the credit, indeed. Have you any idea what you're talking about? Tom's been on sick leave for the last month, so I don't think he's fully in the picture. Enigma is a very sophisticated enciphering machine, and Shark is his ultimate refinement. So, we're not talking about the Times crossword. 
It weighs 26 pounds, battery included, and goes anywhere. The Enigma machine. Germans have thousands of them. What's it do? It turns plain text messages into gobbledygook. Then the gobbledygook is transmitted in Morse. At the receiving end, there's another Enigma machine to turn it back into the original message. Press the same key any number of times, it will always come out different. And you have one of your own? Uh, courtesy of the Polish Cypher Bureau. So what's the problem? Problem? The problem is the machine has 150 million, million, million ways of doing it. According to how you set these three rotors and how you connect these plugs. And that's Shark? No. No, 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 this is a one we can break. Shark is enciphered in the machine with a fourth rotor specially developed for U-boats, which gives it about 4,000 million billion different starting positions. What was the weakness in the Enigma machine then? Was so one? One, of the, one of the weaknesses was that it would um, never encode a letter as itself. Ah. So that actually sort of reduced the number of possibilities that you had. Uh, yeah, that's quite helpful, isn't it? Yeah, and... But the Germans actually did eventually realize this and kind of changed everything again. Uh, so they sort of had various sort of iterations of, of the Enigma machine. Um, and you're in a position where you basically just have to get the logbooks of how to set your Enigma machine up. And then once you've got those, you can kind of work through the computations of what might come out of it. Which so is how why, are we... why Turing, you know, set up his massive sort of computing effort. So how are we getting the logbooks? And we're just nicking them. Yeah, from submarines. Mm. Presumably, as well, there's going to be some stuff that they know is going to appear in all of the all of the messages. Like every single one is going to be stroking off Hitler a bit. <laughs> so this was Turing's great genius in in one respect was that he realised that actually every message would end Heil Hitler. Yeah, which kind of gives you a little clue as to stroking what's off going Hitler. on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, if you want to put it in those terms, yes, I do. That's what I would have been looking for. <laughs> Hitler, so yeah, so, that, so fit. there's there's your sort of weakness built right in. It's always this kind of human factor where mm. people can't quite be random enough, and they can't quite bring themselves not to repeat things over. And you know, if you if you repeat that on every message, you get a clue to you know how the rotors are set, and you know, you know you cut down the number of combinations, and suddenly you've got a little chink in the armor. And and nowadays, from what um, Professor Artur was saying, we just use really 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 hard maths to protect our our secrets. And and he's not saying this is uncrackable. It's just going to take ages and you're going to need a lot of computing power. Yeah. So it sort of becomes sort of effectively uncrackable. Yeah, I mean, this is what we rely on now is this idea that actually there are certain mathematical functions that are easy to do one way and difficult to do the mm. other way. So, you know, one of the basics is is multiplication is easy. So I can do seven times three, and I know that it's twenty-one. Cool. Yeah, very good. Yeah. But if I'm if I'm given twenty-one, then yeah. I have to work out what the factors are just by brute force. So you know, I know my times table, so I can mm. do it fairly I think quickly. I can do that one, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but you know, <laughs> you, you take a, a string of digits that's sort of thousands of digits long, then all of a sudden that becomes really, really difficult to do. So, so our main encryption method RSA is based on the idea that you take two prime numbers and multiply them together. And then you have the result of those prime numbers. But if you have that that big sort of secondary prime up there, you don't know until you work it out which of the two which are the two prime numbers that that made it up. So, so you can yes. base base your encryption padlock basically on that. It's nice. It's very nice. Actually. Yeah, it works very well. When people talk about public key 
encryption, they often say RSA. What is RSA? So RSA is one implementation of public key encryption. Um, comes from MIT researchers Ronald Rivest, who's the R, Adi Shamir, who's the S, and Leonard Edelman, who's the A. So they came up with this they system. They could at least put it through a code, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, RSA is really really, basic. But like you say, they always want credit, these people. Yes, they do. Yeah, so they were the ones who kind of turned the whole thing into a real commercial opportunity. And and that's the encryption that's basically behind most of what's on the internet, you know, all the transactions and stuff. Um, And and it's brilliant. And public key encryption is really good. Uh, But the problem is it's based on, you know, as I said, this this idea that you know you it just brute force enables you to kind of do this computation that eventually will break it, and it's just too much effort at the moment. Yeah, take too long, too much processing power to to break. Yeah, but breakable, but breakable, assuming is, you have huge resources. Yeah, or indeed a quantum computer. Oh. <laughs> the sort of crushing inevitability <laughs> that you're going to bring in quantum. So can quantum computers then break any code? Is that the idea? Uh, they can break any of our current encryption methods, but actually there's something that they can't break, which, and you're going to love this, mm-hmm. quantum cryptography. <sighs> The way quantum physics entered the whole thing is is really fascinating. So on one hand, quantum physics destroys security of the most popular ciphers we use today. On the other hand, it just brings a solution as well. It allows to use quantum phenomena to encrypt information in a very secure way, in such a way that even quantum computers cannot break it. As I said, the one-time part is effectively truly unbreakable as long as you can solve the key distribution problem. How to supply random and secret bits to two distant locations in such a way that uh, you are confident that bits are secure, that they were not eavesdropped by anyone else. And classical cryptographers couldn't do that. Quantum cryptography goes back to one-time path and says, hey, look, we can solve the key distribution problem. And the way it works is based on the concept of quantum entanglement. Entanglement is is a quantum phenomenon, which basically means that two particles, two objects can be separated and somehow still feel the presence of each other. So they respond to any measurements in in an extremely correlated way. And what it means is that if such entangled particles are distributed from a source, it could be, for example, a satellite, two users, Alice and Bob, can tune to uh, the beams of entangled photons and, uh, and perform a sequence of measurements. And the results of those measurements will be perfectly correlated because those uh, photons are entangled. And at the same time, the nature of entanglement can be statistically tested by Alice and Bob. There is a very simple statistical test that uh, allows Alice and Bob to make sure that there was no prior measurement to the final measurements that were performed by Alice and Bob. So that means that no one else managed to break this entanglement. The particles were entangled all the way until Alice and Bob measured them. 
If that was the case, that means nobody had access to those particles. Nobody could intercept. So that means that the cryptographic keys that were generated by measuring those entangled photons at two different locations are not only correlated, but also perfectly secure. Okay, so I'm prepared to accept that Quantum's nailed this. Good. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's basically just the one-time pad. So what you've got with quantum cryptography is a way of distributing a key, you know, the, the, the one-time pad, the, you know, the digits yeah. of the one-time pad, uh, perfectly securely to two different people. And you know that, I mean, I say perfectly securely, I mean, it's possible that an eavesdropper will try to listen in, but as soon as they do, they disturb, you know. they, they change the correlations between these two things. So all these two people, Alice and Bob, have to do is kind of compare what they've got. And if they find that the correlations aren't what they should be, then they know that the eavesdropper has, has listened in. So they just like ditch that key and, and transmit another one. Hold and, on, how are they comparing? So what you do is you send uh, entangled photons. So so Eckert came up with this in 91, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of this means of distributing a one-time pad to two people. And uh, so you have entangled photons, which mm -hmm. have this sort of weird quantum physics link between them. Mm -hmm. And so if you do something to one of that pair of photons, actually... Yeah you will affect the outcome of a measurement on the other one. Yeah. So when you've got this photon, you know, Alice has got it in her hand mm -hmm. and she can do a certain measurement, which then tells her whether, okay, we'll call this a one or a zero, mm -hmm. basically the result. Mm -hmm. And then Bob does a, a measurement which gives him the kind of same outcome mm -hmm. unless an eavesdropper has, has come along. And then they can just, you know, basically chat on the phone and say, oh, what, you know, what was the outcome of your second measurement, first measurement, whatever? Or, you know, have you got the same as this? You know, did it change? You've both got these things and you can compare them and check that no um, eavesdropper has listened because you wouldn't have the right sort of correlations between the two. So you just create this constant stream using these photons of a, of a one-time pad as long as you want it to be. Is there any way to hack it? Well, so you can get in and just disturb it. I mean, effectively, you know, stop them being able to you use it. You can piss it. them off. <laughs> yeah, you can piss them off. But you can't actually hack it. In theory, that's the theory of it. Okay, so, that, so there is no vulnerability to hacking then? So that's amazing. Yes, but of course, when you get into the real world, so so the quantum quantum theory gives you this perfect yeah. code that's protected by the laws of physics, effectively. Mm -hmm. But once you have a real world implementation of this, you have to have a photon generator, you have to have a photon detector at each end, and they're not perfect. They're not 100% perfect. So So you'll be in a position where you actually have to transmit more photons than you really want to uh, some of them will go undetected so you'll be in a position where um you can exploit this kind of detector efficiency and you can exploit the photon generator efficiency to actually sort of be able to tap off a little bit of the signal and be able to to intercept and, and recreate the key so people have done this there's a guy called vadim makarov uh, uh, uh who has actually sort of gone into these practical systems and and kind of been able to recreate a key. Snooped. Snooped, yeah. Mm. Were you surprised when they told you that Admiral Dönitz had changed the German Navy weather code? Any bells go off? Germans are always nervous about Enigma. Well, the Germans are supposed to think that Enigma is an unbreakable system because it would take thousands of years to go through every setting to find the one that turns the code back into the plain text. Next day it's different again. Using human beings, Enigma is safe forever, but we don't use human beings for that. But what if somebody tells them just how we do do it? Your thinking machine. There goes the war. 
So, so is anyone using these systems then, these quantum key distribution systems? So they've been used in a few um, sort of demonstration effects. So, so there was a, a time in the Swiss elections where some of the results were transmitted by quantum key distribution or quantum protected uh, means. But mostly it's sort of still at the demonstration stage. We don't know of, of actually, you know, this being used properly to protect secrets Although, mm. you know, there are rumours of networks around in various countries. Um, the most recent thing that, that was quite interesting is, is that the Chinese are now using a satellite called Micius that mm. um, is able to generate keys, uh, quantum keys, entangled pairs, and sort of basically beam keys to different places on Earth. So we have a growing uh, ability to kind of start to use this stuff now. And so have they used it for anything specific then, the Chinese? Um, so, <laughs> or would we not know? <laughs> we, we don't know. I mean, the Chinese are, are good at this. They're definitely best in the world in terms of using satellites to distribute quantum keys. Because when you do it over optical fiber, you can only have a certain distance before you just lose the photons, and it's just, it's just you, you can't get a very big network. But when you, you know, beam up and down from a satellite, then obviously you can cover vast amounts of the planet. So they did a demonstration in January, or it was published in January, where uh, they had. Uh, communication protected by quantum physics between uh, a lab in China and a lab in Austria. And they had actually, I mean, what they did was they generated a key that uh, encrypted a video call that lasted, I think it was like 75 minute video call or something. So just constantly generating these sort of streams of photons uh, that enable you to just encrypt your your, uh, communication. So there's definitely growing capabilities here. Is it a worry that the Chinese are better than everyone else at this? Nobody likes the fact that there are these unbreakable codes. So, so it's it's sort of great if you've got it. It's really problematic, as as we saw. You know, the U.S. government tried to stop public key encryption effectively. Now, with quantum encryption, governments are getting a little bit worried about who's got the better systems. And uh, and of course, there's lots of U.S. researchers saying we need to put more money into this if China's you know going forging ahead like it is. So so people are worried. Who knows what the Chinese are going to do with it? I mean, you know, I'm not sure that we've got access to their secrets anyway. So, so them ramping up security even further is, mm. you know, maybe it's moot. If you look at the history of cryptography, there is this battle between code makers and code breakers. Whenever someone comes with a really ingenious crypto system, sooner or later, you'll have someone else who is even more brilliant and comes up with a a brilliant method of breaking the systems. And uh, it has been conjectured that this will go at infinitum, that it will, it will over, all, always be the case. So whenever we come up with something that we believe is secure, sooner or later someone else will come and break it. Uh, but it, it seems now with quantum cryptography that uh, we are at the end of this road, that it's not going to be the case, that the code makers are winning uh, simply because the difficulty of breaking uh, cryptographic systems in, is now not mathematical anymore. It's passed to the laws of physics. Uh, so quantum physics is as it is, uh, like it or not, but you cannot change it by your willpower, right? Or however brilliant you are. The question we now have to ask is if technologically it is possible to make an impenetrable device or system where the encryption is so strong that there's no key, there's no door, 
at all. It's always very difficult to, you know, to speculate about the impact of new technology because it's made by people, for people, and it's going to be used and abused by people. On one hand, I can see that... Uh, Many governments may not want to have this kind of communication uh, implemented simply because it's impossible to eavesdrop on it. And uh, we would like to have backdoor to, um, to be able to listen to encrypted communication because let's face it, there are bad guys out there and we want to be protected. How do we apprehend the child pornographer? How do we disrupt a terrorist plot? What mechanisms do we have available? On the other hand, there's also a positive side, I would say, of quantum cryptography because quantum cryptography gives power to the end user. So namely, the privacy can be verified by users via a simple statistical test. You don't have to rely on external authority telling you that this device is secure. You don't have to trust anyone. You can basically trust the laws of physics and a simple statistical test. And, and presto, you have your confidence that the data you received are secure. I mean, one thing that immediately occurs to me is when uh, Professor Arthur is saying, um, you know, it's great because as the end user, you don't need anyone to tell you that it's um, that it's been a private communication. You can test it yourself. I don't think that is true because most people, almost everyone, will have no idea how any of it works. So I could just say to you, ah, this thing I've just sold you is a uh, is quantum is using quantum to uh, to encrypt everything you're saying, and all you need to do is run this test that I provided you with, and that test will uh, guarantee that everything that you've just said is entirely private and, and and unbreakable. And then people will just use it, and it could just be it could just be nothing. Could just be a load of nonsense. I'm glad you brought that up because actually it's not true. So Arthur, because <laughs> this, this is quite funny, but when Arthur came up with this idea of of how to do quantum cryptography or how to to send these these uh, the quantum keys, yeah, um, his protocol for it actually allows for a test of the equipment itself. So um, he didn't realize this when he did it. So so it was years and years later, somebody else pointed out that th his method of doing it also allows you to have what's called device-independent cryptography. So you can literally buy one off anyone, mm -hmm. and there's a fairly straightforward statistical test you can do to check whether they, they've put a backdoor in or whether they've got any kind of way of of um, decrypting the, the stuff ah. that you're using. So so using Eckert's protocol for quantum cryptography actually allows you to buy one off the shelf, buy a system off the shelf and test it. And and you can prove, you know, using the statistics of quantum physics and the, and the correlations between these entangled photons, you can prove that nobody else has actually got any access to your data, even the people who made it, even the people who are, you know, you know setting the thing up for you. There's, there's actually foolproof tests for this. So, you know, so actually, you know, this is the first totally secure system. And, and, but, you know, there'll always be human factors. So, so mm. you will always have the ability to break into someone's office and just read the message or whatever. Um, you'll always have the ability probably to be able to sort of lean on people and, and get people to give you the information that you want. So, I mean, it's not completely sort of secure in, in that, in that humans are always involved. Yeah. Yeah, but from the physics point of view, actually, it's it it's hundred percent, yeah, locked down. Mm. Guess is the annoying thing about 
this stuff that someone could just keep interrupting so you'd never be able to get your message through. So I just keep intercepting yeah. your um, quantum encrypted message and you're like, oh, it's been intercepted again. Okay, let's use another, <laughs> let's use another key. Oh, it's been intercepted again. Oh, for <laughs> Yeah, you would find ways, wouldn't you, though, of, of you know, throwing people off the scent. I mean, they can't be monitoring everything that everybody's doing all the time. So... So How that's very not, naive of you. It's not really going to happen like that. And you could, you know, in theory, even like the Chinese satellite at the moment is not 100% secure because you could tamper with the satellite in theory, you know, in between times when it's sending the keys to one and sending them to another or whatever. Mm. So so there are always little hardware hacks that you can do. But basically, you know, the system's in place pretty much that we could implement un- unbreakable encryption. <laughs> Done it all. You've broken every code. Paul's the rebel to the floor. Science is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer Manley. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. It does help. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. And thanks very much for listening. Gee, this encryption's complicated, though, isn't it? Especially with a hangover. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home, and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 